1: it died, 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 i dai i i i i i i i i i i i i i i i i i i i i i i i i i i i i i i i i i i i i i i i i i i i i i i i i i i i i i i i i i i i i i i i i i i i i i i i i i i i i i i i i i i i i
0: Shalom, shalom, holy friends, it is great to see you. Thank you for being here and making my day. Thank you for making my day. It is wonderful to be here with you. Thank you so much. We are excited to be here at debate number 33. We've made it, we've made it. And this is a very important debate, care for the vulnerable versus education. And the prism I wanna look at that question through is what does every community need first and foremost? We're going to look at some interesting sources on this, but before that, let me ask you a poll question. What is more important in your giving to give directly to the others who need the most to support education, or they are both equally important to me? Take a moment there. Okay, friends, here we go. Think about the last time you moved. Why did you move? Did you move for a job? Did you move for a nicer home or maybe a downsized home? Did did you move to get into a specific school district? The Talmudic rabbis also thought about moving and they had specific requirements or suggestions when one is looking to move. Consider this fascinating Talmudic passage on Sanhedrin 17b. It is taught in a Breitah. A Torah scholar is not permitted to reside in any city that does not have these 10 things. So they would say, don't move based on house quality or, or safety or on school district. Here's, your, here's the 10 things you need when you move. Number one, a court that has the authority to flog and punish transgressors. So I'm sure all of you chose that as your first priority when you moved last time, right? To make sure that there was a court that would (laughs) flog, it would flog its transgressors, right? Steve, Steve for sure. I know Steve's neighborhood. He only wanted flogging in his neighborhood. (laughs) Okay, number two, a charity fund for which monies are collected by two people and distributed by three, very interesting. This leads to a requirement for another three people in the city. And th- then you need a synagogue, a bathhouse, a public bathroom, a doctor, a blood letter, a scribe, a ritual slaughter, a shochet, and a teacher of young children. Okay, very interesting. Very interesting list here of what they think is important for a Jew who is deciding where to move. You need a place to pray. You need a place to take a bath. Obviously you need a pickleball court. You gotta have a pickleball court, right? (laughs) Um, You know, you need someone who, you need a scribe there. So it's very interesting. Obviously you need a place where you can have a job. They take for granted a place where there's gonna be food, where you're gonna have a job, you're gonna support yourself. But aside from your bare essentials, you need community and you need some things done. But the last one is what I'm interested in a teacher of young children. Yes, Matthew, you have a question?
2: No, I was just gonna make a quick comment off the children issue. Yeah. Number one about flogging in a court system. Yeah. There was an article by Peggy Noonan in the Wall Street Journal about why immigrants write, they come to America. And one of which is that we have a court system and people do not ask for bribes. And this is the first time I've heard this in a Jewish context, that there has to be a sense of order, civility and protection for the individual before you, I mean, people would not move to the deep South in the 1960s. My brother would not even apply to a med school he got into. He wouldn't go because of the racist attitudes at the time. So the concept of justice, I think underlies all these other issues. Great, Great. awesome. Including for the children that you do justice for them in an impartial and fair way.
0: Awesome, Matthew. Thank you for that context. I think that's exactly right. What they're not saying is here is we love flogging people. Flogging is like a sport for us. What they're saying is, yeah, this is a just society that holds accountable those who are, 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 are causing harm to society. And you're right. I can't remember how many times I was in Mexico where people I was traveling with were like arrested for nothing. And the, the cop was like, give me a hundred bucks or I'm gonna take you just to jail. You know, and that's not rare in other parts of, of the world where, um, you know, the, the justice system is just built on bribes. Now we have plenty of problems in the American justice system, but they don't compare to anything like that anything like that where a police officer is just gonna work for bribes on a, on, a, on, a, um, you know, on a systemic level. And so I think that's exactly right, that you are going to a place that operates with justice. And Rabbi Moshe Feinstein and many other 20th century rabbis said that we actually, one of the reasons you can turn in a fellow Jew into the authorities in America for violent crimes and not be guilty of moser. Moser means in, you know when you live in an unjust society, A Jew can't report a Jew because they're going to treat them unfairly. They're going to kill them. They're going to put them in a hole for 30 years. But the reason you can turn a Jew into the authorities in America is because it is considered to be a just society, by and large. Now, he did make a caveat. He said the judicial branch is considered just, but the criminal justice side is not. The the punitive justice side, by, by which he meant the American mass incarceration system will imprison people for much longer than um, they deserve by Jewish law for a crime. If you commit a white collar crime in America, and according to Jewish law, you should receive X, Y, or Z, the penalty in an American prison will be much harsher by and large uh, than than it would be uh, in a Jewish context. So he said that, that we can trust the judicial branch to be just by and large. Of course, there's always perversions of justice. Um, But we can't trust the prison system to be just because the Jewish law doesn't have a prison. There is no prison in Jewish tradition. That is never a prescribed punishment. Okay, so right. So Matthew's point is very important here that one of the 10 things you need is justice in regards to punishment and justice in regards to education. Justice in regards Uh, to education. uh, Rabbi,
3: can I make one comment? Um, In this country though, would say our uh, fellow Jews who are black feel the same way about the justice system and the threat, and 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 if it's if this re- this requirement is towards Jews or do we look at it on the wider context and the degree? So yes, this ca- our country has a, a a fairer system, especially for us. But this is a, a, a question. That, that has certainly been prominent in the last couple of years.
0: Michael, thank you for that. Thank you for that. So you're absolutely right that, um, that for white people um, who have the privilege of you know, have, having under policing in their neighborhoods and um, are, are not uh, victims of systemic bias um, and systemic racism in that regard, that we can experience the fullness of a, of, of a justice system And you're absolutely right that there is still a lacking and a wanting in regards to that on the policing level, on the judicial level, on the legislative level for people of color in America. So I think in comparison to white folks and people of color in America, big discrepancy. That said, even the worst side of our justice system, I I feel confident in saying, is still significantly better than systems that basically don't have a model of law and order. In, in other countries um, where there, there really is, there is no structure, there's no accountability, this and that. And so if you compared just like the Mexican policing system to the American policing system or parts of Africa where it's, I mean, corruption is literally pervasive or a non-democratic society that's run by tyrants, right? Now, that, that is not me in any way whitewashing our major problems in America, they're significant. Um, it's merely uh, taking a, a comparative global level um so uh, on, yeah, and uh, in regards to uh, how good we have it here even though we have a long way to go okay so much more to say about that and i hope we'll come back to it so but thank you for both of those comments so okay now that is our first list of 10 requirements <laughs> let's see the list of the Rambam. maimonides has his own list he says in any city where the, these 10 conveniences are not found a torah scholar is not permitted to live Number one, a physician. Oh, that wasn't in the Talmud. It didn't say physician. Though. The Rambam is a physician. Now, we wouldn't call that modern science by any means, but it's a long way from the Talmud. And to be sure, Maimonides says we are bound by Talmudic law, but he makes a big exception, science and medicine. He says, don't worry about any of the Talmud's medical and scientific advice. He doesn't say it's all Narshkite, but he says, it was just advice, not law. We really know science 500, 600, 700 years later in a way that they didn't understand. And call the Homer all the more so 21st century in comparison, uh, you know, a thousand years later from the Rambam uh, in this regard. Nonetheless, he says, don't move somewhere. Now to be sure the Talmud did have a blood letter. Blood letting, of course was considered to be a medical practice. So he does say physician, oh, he goes further, a surgeon. Not only do you need a physician for pre- preventative healthcare and for immediate needs, you also need a surgeon. Now, I wouldn't want to have surgery in, uh, in Cairo in the 12th century, I don't know about you. Maybe, maybe, maybe that's on your bucket list to have surgery in Cairo in the 12th century, not on my bucket list, okay? But surgery, I mean, even surgery in the civil war in America, they cut your limb off, you know, you've got an injury that just cuts your limb off to invent, prevent infections. So uh, surgery was not a very delightful thing, uh, but a physician, a surgeon. Oh, here the Rambam is similar to the Talmud. He says a bathhouse, right? Um, a bathhouse. You want to go to the spa? You want to sit in your one hundred and four degree hot tub? Maybe you want to go to the schwitz. You want to go to the schwitz with your friends after your pickleball and you know sweat it out a little bit. Have a good time in the Schmitz. So he says also, okay, enjoy the Schmitz. Go to the hot tub, go to the spa. You know, use a little shampoo and conditioner. If you ever went to a Turkish bathhouse, maybe the Turkish Turkish bathhouse, they're going to give you some whips. You know, they're going to whip your back a little for the massage experience, which most Americans would cry at. Then he says a comfort station. To be honest, I don't know what he means there. I'd have to look at the Hebrew, which of course he didn't write this in Hebrew. He wrote this in Judeo-Aramaic. Um, but the comfort station, I, so I don't know what that is. Maybe one of you knows running water, ah, oh, running water. That's very interesting because in the global South today, this is still a major issue. The millions upon millions, maybe even over a billion, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if it's over a billion who don't have access to clean water, uh, in my time in various villages in the global South, they were still using well water. Um, yeah, comfort station is probably a washroom, Lauren. I think you're right. Thank you for that. So in addition to them not having clean water, they also don't have um, a latrine. They don't have access to um, a place to go to the bathroom. And that of course is a public health crisis. If you don't have um, you know, access to uh, you know, such an opportunity that does lead to public health uh, problems uh, as does the running water. Then it says a river or a spring. Now I don't know what he means here. I assume he means for mikvah. Um, a, um, that, oh, oh, no, no, that, that wouldn't make sense. That wouldn't make sense. Uh, but that seems very similar to the running water issue, but he wants a river or spring. Maybe that has to do with crops and livelihood and the ability to sustain ourselves. Maybe one of you has an idea. A house of worship. Okay, so there he agrees with the Talmud in the, in the need to have a community, a community of prayer. A school teacher, just like the Talmud. You need a school teacher, education justice, A recorder, someone who's going to document things in the community. A collector of charity. We saw that in the Talmud also. But that's an interesting difference. The Talmud wanted accountability. It wanted there to be, if you recall what the Talmud said, we want two collectors and three distributors. We want two to collect the charity. So there's accountability. There's transparency. It's not never just one person. And then three distributors as well. Here, the Rambam only says a collector of charity. So I don't know what system of accountability he has in mind. And then a tribunal with police powers, okay? So very interesting similarities and differences. So one of the interesting commonalities here is that there should be teachers because after all, shouldn't education be central to our lives as adults? Not to mention for our children and grandchildren. The Aruch HaShocha, not to be mistaken with the Shochan Aruch, very different, but similar, writes about when a newcomer to the community should be forced to pay off if they don't voluntarily. So let me be clear here. He says, some things you do charitably should be voluntary. Some things that you do charitably should be forced if you don't do it of your own means. His name is Rabbi Yechiel Michal Epstein of the very early 20th century, really late 19th century. And here's what he says over there. All who dwell in the city are obligated to give all city sedaka funds. And as such, the sages said that whoever dwells in the city for 30 days can be forced to give sedaka to the public fund with the rest of the community. Now, just a reminder, why 30 days? 30 days is also the halakhic requirement on mezuzah. If you stay in a hotel room, you don't need a mezuzah. If you just moved into a new apartment, a new house, you don't need a mezuzah. After 30 days, it is considered as though you live somewhere. It's a muck home kavua. And after 30 days, that's when the requirement to put a mezuzah on your front door and beyond emerges. So, too, after 30 days living in the community, if you haven't paid to help take care of the vulnerable in your community the community can come knocking on your door knocking on your door it's not going to be uh you know a friend a, a friendly shmooly invite to coffee uh you know it's going to be someone not banging on your door what are you doing are you a yid are you a yid living in the community if a person dwelled there for 3 months they can force that person to to give to the food collective the food collective if a person lived there for six months, they can force that person to give to the clothing fund so that they can clothe the poor of the city with it. If a person dwelled there for nine months, they can force that person to give sadaqa to the burial fund so they can bury the poor and cover all burial needs with it. Oh, fascinating stuff here, friends. Wow. So we what did we just learn here? We learn here that after 30 days, you can be asked to support the community. After three months, you can be forced to support the food collective. After six months, you can be forced to support the clothing fund for the asylees and the refugees and for the homeless and for people who need clothes. And after nine months, it's interesting that this categorization, after nine months, you got to support the burial fund. Because in those days, burials were expensive, but in these days, geez, what does it cost for a coffin? What does it cost for the the tahara, the washing of the body? What does it cost for the plot? What does it cost for the plot? What does it cost for um, the clergy? If someone's not a member of a congregation, they need someone to officiate or want to officiate. What does it cost for everyone to fly into town if they're gonna fly in and not do a Zoom funeral like they did in the good olden, olden days? right? These are expensive things, uh, expensive things. What does it cost to close up the whole, the home, the estate, whatever's going on here. This is, if you haven't read Erica Brown's book on, on death, where she really looks at the, at, the, at, the, at the cost of the funeral industry, it is worth looking at. Um, and, and it's a justice issue that has rarely been explored. The, the exploitation, now we live in a, a time of, of inflation. Now, inflation is real, it is very real. Um, it is, yes, it's a boogeyman also that, that makes people very afraid. So there's the boogeyman inflation that, is, that makes everyone very afraid. Then there's the real inflation that's reality. And then there's a new category where inflation doesn't need to occur, but people exploit. They say, oh, everyone else is raising prices, so I will too. And now they're exploiting. They, it's, it's, it's a prohibition in Jewish law called onaah. They've just raised their rates 30% on people for no reason other than everyone else is doing it. Um, And that is called exploitation. And so, too, there's exploitation in the burial industry. So, friends, there's a few different categories of supporting here. First, there's maser. Maser means tithing. That means that that you take 10% of your income and you put it aside. You make $1,000 a month from your job. You make $1,000 a month. Automatically, $100 is not yours. Actually, $1,000 post-tax, let's say right? You, you, uh, part of it goes to taxes, $1,000 post tax, a uh, hundred bucks automatically you put into the master. You get, you give, you don't say, Oh, I don't care. I got to pay my rent, whatever. No, nope, hundred bucks is gone. Now you've got 900 bucks to live on. That's master. Then there's sadaka Sudaka is what you give automatically. And then there's these other collective funds that you're obligated to in the community. Okay. So Sadaka, So I'm having coffee with a rabbi this morning, early this morning. And a guy comes over, I tried to avoid the obnoxious part where he tried to proselytize me to Christianity. He says, I was saved in 2002, have you been saved? I said, okay, uh, you know, I, 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 you know, I'm used to proselytizing in good old Arizona. And so uh, I try to look past it and not hold it past these folks, you know, trying to save me. In any case, uh, he, then, he then tells me that he needs uh, help from my church. I, so I gave him a little education that it's not called a church. Okay, don't, uh, you know, don't take it personally. I assume he's not trying to offend just uh, has never met a Jew before. And then he asks for help. And so my, my, my dear friend Isaac, uh, my dear friend Isaac will help make some peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. He told me he hasn't eaten in 16 hours. I gave him a whole bunch of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for my friend Isaac. And that my kids made, so Isaac bought the peanut butter and jelly along with our dear friend, uh, Freddy and friend Cody. And, uh, and my kids made the peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And now this man received the sandwiches, wonderful. And then we gave him a Safeway card. We gave him a Safeway card. Not because we're righteous, because that's what Jews have to do. You have to have food ready in your car. You gotta have a Safeway card ready. So when the guy hasn't eaten in 16 hours, you have it ready. That doesn't make us Sadiqim. We're not righteous for this. That's what it means to be a Jew. You're ready to give people immediately. And if you don't give immediately after 30 days, after three months, after six months, after nine months, then the Jews are gonna knock on your door. And we're not some charitable righteous people to support it. That's what we do. To be a Jew means we're obligated. Of course, there's kind things we can do, the world, kindness is still a category, but kindness kicks in after obligation. First there's obligation, and then there's kindness. Should we prioritize an ethic of care when compelling funds? After all, what could be more important than caring for the vulnerable? Or should we prioritize education when compelling funds, right? Just to be clear, do we wanna compel funds because we need to support the vulnerable, or do we not wanna compel them because we want people to be motivated on their own, to give as they wish, and to educate. So if you take the classic classic um, Democrat versus Republican debate, you know, to, to, to water it down, the Democrats will say, I don't care about freedom. I care about taxing enough that we can meet the needs of the vulnerable. The Republican will say, whoa, whoa, hold on. Yeah, we have to we have to maximize freedom. People have the right to choose their own charities and their own altruism. The freedom to choose this, you can educate, but don't legislate. Okay, so after all, the Talmud records how how important education was for the rabbis. It's not just about compulsion. It says over here in Bava Batra, Yehoshua ben Gamla came and decreed that there should be teachers of children in every country and city, and they would bring the children to start school at age six or seven. Now, friends, this is a big deal, because once again, if you go to the Global South and you spend time in villages, the children don't go to school. It's not only that they don't have schools many times, it's that they need child labor. They need child labor. I don't care if you're four years old or six years old, there's a job for you on the farm. There's a job for you on the farm. Education is for the elite. We would never do that. We need you to put you to work, right? Nonetheless, even for Jews in poverty, the requirement is you don't put your kid to work. Your kid needs an education, right? Because at the end of the day, you are a soul, not a body. And your soul needs to be educated, even if you're in poverty. So on this point, the Meiri teaches. Here's the Meiri, the great Rabbi Menachem Meiri of the of the early 14th century, a French Talmudist who wasn't known so well until his books were covered and recovered in the Geniza, the Beit Tabaqira. They found his works, radical ideas, radical ideas that that the Meiri has that are truly uh, amazing. So here's what he has to say over here. It is a positive commandment for a father to teach his son Torah, right? Um, okay, uh, yes, it, it is gendered, but we can unpack that a little later. But you know, I mean, that's basically what everyone thought. Of course, the requirement for girls to be educated is there as well. But in every society, education was um, uh, still. I mean, not in America, actually. In America, you may have seen that that more that more and more men are not applying to college or dropping out of college more and more women are going. So we have the opposite problem in America, but in in the global South, for example, boys are staying in school much longer uh, than girls. Actually, some cases have the opposite because the boys are wanted more for labor and the girls less so, so the girls are getting more education. Uh, So it depends by country, but it's an interesting thing to look at. In any case, um, you shall teach him, the Torah says. This also applies to his grandson. As it says, you shall make it known to your sons and your grandsons. In every event, every scholar must teach everyone who wants to learn. However, he does not have to pay the teachers himself, except for his sons and grandsons, teachers, until they decree that teachers of children be appointed in every district and city and to bring the children to start school at age six or seven, according to the strengths and health health of the child. Because it's explained in the Talmud that we excommunicate every city that doesn't appoint teachers of children. If they still don't do do so, we destroy the city for the world is sustained only by that which comes out of the mouths of children. They wouldn't interrupt the study of children in schools, even for the construction of the temple, right? Mashiach comes and says, whoa, the Messiah is here. Let's go build the temple. They say, no, don't disrupt the classroom, even for the redemption of the world, right? That, That a city is hopeless if it doesn't place education as its primary. So friends, once again, our debate is care for the vulnerable versus... Education, we've seen the case of how serious it is to take care of the hungry and the poor and the, and the sick. And now we're seeing how big of a priority education is. I don't care how poor you are. You got you to gotta do what you can to make sure your kid is getting the full experience. Rabbi Eliezer Waldenberg, the great uh, Tzitz Eliezer, taught that it is not so clear that charity for the vulnerable is so different from sustaining intellectual and spiritual pursuits. Oh, he wrote, the Maharam, a medieval Jewish commentator, allowed the purchase of books for study and lending with charity money. We can apply this to lending books to those who need them for study, for they are poor. And this is like providing spiritual sustenance, which is no worse than supplying physical sustenance to one who lacks it. So very interesting, on the one hand, humans are animals and we need to honor our biological needs to survive. On the other hand, humans are fundamentally meaning makers that transcend our animalistic instincts. As Viktor Frankl taught so proudly, we need meaning to survive. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs wrote about the passing of the golden age for Spanish Jewry. In 1391, the Spanish equivalent of Kristallnacht, now, we don't talk about Sephardic Jewry pogroms. When we talk about anti-Semitism in American Jewish life, we normally give it from an Ashkenazic perspective about the Shoah and you know the Christian massacres of Jews throughout the centuries and the pogroms and the crusades. Um, but if you look at the Sephardic world as well, the 1391, the Spanish equivalent of Christian Hacherkert from the day of destruction of Jewish businesses and the murder of Jews until their full expulsion in 1492, Jews lived under harsh persecution. They lacked basic rights and were constantly pushed to convert to Christianity by the sword. Some pretended to convert. They were called conversos, while others tried to survive while resisting. Here's how Sachs explains it in his interesting article in 2009. We also ordain that every community of 15 households, householders or more should be obliged to maintain a qualified elementary teacher to instruct their children in scripture. They shall provide him with sufficient income for a living in accordance with the number of his dependents. The parent shall be obliged to send their child, their children to that teacher and each shall pay him in accordance with their means. If this revenue from the parents should prove inadequate, the community shall be obliged to supplement it with an amount necessary for his livelihood in accordance with the time and the place. Until modern times, There was no parallel to this Jewish insistence on education as the fundamental right and duty of every person, every child, nor was this an innovation. It goes back to the dawn of Jewish time. God says to Abraham, for I have chosen him so that he will instruct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. Abraham was chosen to be a father and a teacher. In two of the key passages of Jewish faith, the first and second paragraphs of the Shema, Moshe places education at the heart of Jewish life. Teach these things to your children, talking about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Consider how essential Education has been in the United States, fast forwarding centuries. A fundamental Supreme Court ruling in 1954 leads, of course, the Brown versus Board of Education of Topeka, this landmark ruling around segregation. Education is perhaps the most important function of state and local governments. Compulsory school attendance laws and the great expenditures for education both demonstrate our recognition of the importance of education to our democratic society. It is required in the performance of our most basic public responsibilities, even service in the armed forces. It is the very foundation of good citizenship. Today, it is a principal instrument in awakening the child to cultural values and preparing him for later professional training and in helping him to adjust normally to his environment. In these days, it is doubtful that any child may reasonably be expected to succeed in life if he is denied the opportunity of an education." Now, um, now, friends, this has to do with college as well. The reason high school became free in America was because it was deemed necessary to survive in the workplace. So too, today, a college education is by and large deemed necessary to survive in, in the broader workplace, to have, live off a living wage. Of course, there's some exceptions where an employer will um, uh, an employer in a in a in a serious position will will break ranks and really value a person beyond that degree. But by and large, um, this is one of the cases why uh, college education ought uh, ought to be made free as deemed necessary. Education is so important that it is a basic right to which all should have access. For some, this is obvious. Here's what Obama said in 2011, <clears throat> oh, or not, no, not what he said, D- described about it. Describing education and, and, and education equality is the civil rights issue of our time. President Obama called Wednesday for a renewed effort to eliminate the achievement gap between African-American students and others. He said, too many of our kids are, drop, are dropping out of schools. Mr. Obama told a mostly black audience in the ballroom of the Sheraton New York Hotel in Manhattan. That's not a white, black or brown problem, That's everybody's problem for a healthy democracy, for a healthy economy. Okay, friends, to conclude here. Today, if faced with the opportunity as a philanthropist to save lives directly or save lives through education, which would we choose? Would we choose humanitarian relief since it's urgent and direct? Or would we choose education we can only pull people out of perpetual poverty and solve social problems with education? And how can we sustain the values that even ensure humanitarian relief is a conversation about education? Just as the Talmud emphasizes both, we too, thankfully, need not choose. Individually and collectively, we can and must invest in both. Okay, friends, I would love to hear from you.
4: Hi, Rabbi, this was, uh, thank you so much. This has been an amazing, amazing topic. Um, Forgive my lack of knowledge on uh, the institution's prior, like Jewish organization's priorities of education versus um, vulnerabilities, you know, providing uh, resources to the vulnerable. What have you seen in American organizations, big ones like the Federation, the JCC, where have you seen big Jewish American organizations prioritize th- their finite resources on that subject, the vulnerable the vulnerable versus education?
0: Oh, oh, what a great question, Eric. You're right, because when we think of the collective fund as we're discussing it today, it's a little bit outdated because we don't have a center of American Jewish uh, life anymore. I can't speak about Canadian Jewish life and the trends there, maybe Lauren will speak to that, but in American Jewish life, uh, as as the Federation system has been on the decline for many years now, uh, it used to be kind of the central pot where Jews didn't know what to do, they didn't know how to be philanthropists, they didn't know what the organizations were doing. They said, I'll just give the federation and they'll distribute it everywhere it's really needed to the schools and to the seniors and to the vulnerable. And more and more Jews don't want to do that. Number one, they are more connected to the organizations. Number two, they have their own priorities. Number three, they might not trust those federations. Um, They might not trust how large the overhead is. They may not trust the prioritization or a whole host of other reasons why that system is on the decline. Um, and, uh, And they might have their own donor advised fund rather than uh, then go through something as, as such. Of course, there's many still today who don't wish to participate in making those decisions or don't know how to make those decisions. And so they go through a system. Nonetheless, if you look at that, I think there's, there's a few different ways to look at the question of how is this working today? You can look at the state of Israel because to some degree, the state of Israel is kind of like a collective Jewish fund. And how do they think about spending on security, how do they think about the vulnerable? How do they think about the education system in the state of Israel? How do they think about um, investments in the future? A whole range of things. Then you could look at the federation system and say, how much does the federation system take care of the vulnerable poor? How much does it take care of of the day school system? How much does it take care of the gent- of Gentiles in addition to the Jewish vulner- vulnerable, right? And then you could look at, um, Uh, you could look at the general trends of American Jewish philanthropy, where the high, high majority of orthodox philanthropic giving stays within the orthodox community. Not only do they not give to other Jews or to collective Jewish enterprises, they don't give to non-Jewish causes. Over 90%, well over 90% of orthodox giving stays completely within orthodoxy. Over 90%, last time I read it, of non-orthodox Jewish philanthropy goes out of the Jewish community entirely, which is is the biggest threat, potentially, to the future of liberal Judaism uh, globally. That orthodoxy, one of their secrets to uh, surviving is their commitment to sustaining their so-called own. Right. That one of the greatest threats um, is the lack of investment in liberal Judaism from liberal Jews. and um, you know, the liberal Jews want to give to hospitals. They want to give to the opera. They want to give to their local food bank, all, all worthy causes. But they're not as interested in giving to uh, to the local Jewish causes, by and large, uh, due to the, the heavy assimilation rates in liberal Jewish uh, America. And so um, I think it would vary state by state, city by city, country by country in regards to where is there more of an investment in the school system and where is there in the vulnerable? In, in the vulnerable, but by and large, I feel very confident saying that. Um, actually, I don't want to say that the trends are too diverse. I, I I would challenge us actually to look at the trends. You can look at one of those pie charts in an annual report that shows. You know, one third went to Israel, one third went to local institutions. And then you look at the breakdown of those institutions. How many went to a Jewish family services, which is taking care of seniors and providing therapy to to vulnerable populations or the like? How many are going to the local day schools? Um, And you can get a breakdown of kind of where we're investing in education versus the vulnerable. And I think it would be a fascinating case study. Um, And now too, if you looked at a synagogue, if you look at a synagogue as, as a pool of funds, you would also notice there that the charitable giving, now you might say that's not the role of a synagogue, the charitable giving is very limited. How does a synagogue give to the vulnerable? Generally only through a rabbi discretionary fund. Some synagogues have some exceptions to that with the social action program or the like. But generally the rabbi has a discretion fund. So someone comes to the rabbi, and says, I'm, I, I'm really embarrassed, I can't pay my bills, I, 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 can't, I can't buy food. The rabbi has a fund that, you know, when they perform a wedding or a funeral, people contribute to that and they can support those people quietly. Um, and But the synagogue itself has many investments in their Sunday school program, in their educational programs, but much less in the vulnerable. So the synagogue is the center for many people. And that is a case where education would be the priority. So in short, Eric, I don't have anything close to an answer to your question. I think it's a fascinating a fascinating question. We, it's also fascinating to look at America. If you look at the taxation and what percent of our taxes that we pay to the federal government and the state government and the local government, what percent goes to social services um, and what percent goes to education? That would also be something I'm not prepared to answer but would be interesting to note as well. Um, so if you look back at, um, People who protested war, um, they said, (laughs) actually, it's on the far left and the far right. People who didn't want to pay taxes, like in the Vietnam era, because they said, I don't want to fund the Vietnam War. Um, You know, um, uh, that was interesting. If you look at what percentage of taxation was actually going to that and what was going to social services, it's an interesting calculation. And then if you look at the far right today, who doesn't want to pay taxes because they don't want to pay the social services. Um, and what percentage is going on there versus the percentage they might agree with that goes to security? It's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting and understudied phenomenon. So, anyways, Eric, I, have, I, I I'm totally ill-prepared to answer your question, but if you do the research, I I I, I hope you'll share with us. Okay, I see Lauren has a hand up.
5: Yeah. Oh, to to quickly answer in Canada, so Cana- there used to be Canadian Jewish Congress, which was an umbrella organization and it helped towards funding schools. Quebec, however, is our one province in which the secular studies of the Jewish day schools are covered. So it doesn't cost as much to send your kids. Um, Toronto Jewish Federation does give money to the schools and they also help a little bit with giving money to people who really can't afford it, but it's horrifically expensive to send your kid to day school we have all kinds. Anyway, so I was just going to say, like, the Jewish education, very important to too many Jewish children receive none. And it's so important that they learn Hebrew, very important for the connection to Israel so that we maintain our language, and they need some kind of background in Tanakh, and Midot and all that. But I was also going to say with a secular education, a great way to keep someone down is not to give it to them. The Chavidim in Israel do not give their children a secular education. and this way, they keep their kids dependent on on the rabbinical um, hierarchy. That way the kids can't work. They sit and study in yeshiva their whole life. It's tragic. Um, Here in Canada, there isn't good education and the schools are in terrible condition on um, first nation reserves and that's a shunda. and we you know when i think in the us in poor neighborhoods and black neighborhoods they don't get the same kind of education that right. you would get in a wealthy right. white neighborhood right. so you know thank it's you, it's vital to maintain an equal society and a fair society
0: thank you yeah so both on the jewish educational front you make a great case there and also on the, on, the, on the secular front and the equality of education. So uh, excellent, thank you. Yes, Michael Cronenfeld and then Steve Chauvin.
3: I think you got to look at this question in the context of Jews in this country. Self-identity is how separate they feel from the wider society. And I think there's so many signs that, of, that, the, that there's probably not this identity. Look at the rates of inter, interfaith marriage Look at uh, the number of uh, of Jews who consider themselves secular Jews, and so I think that 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 what we're talking here about funding and things like that is a symptom of what is a symptom. It means it could, you know, that it's negative. But the basic question of is self identity of Jews as individuals and as groups that they consider. Significant in their own perception of the community they're a part of.
0: Yeah, amazing, amazing. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. And I think one of the reasons we see uh, at Valley Beit Midrash, for example, um, the education of the next generation is so important is not only for Judaism's sake alone, the survival of Judaism, survival of Judaism, but also that Jewish values survive. That the, that the value of education itself survives, as we saw. Historically, this was a major insight, this idea that every child ha- should has the right to education. We, this, this, is a, this is a 20th century phenomenon in America, as we saw with the Brown versus Board of Education, this equality of education, but that's, that's millennia old for Jews. And so in addition to Judaism surviving, the notion that Jews are responsible for society, uh, that's surviving as well. So yeah, so Michael, thank you. I think that you're right, that, the, that our, our ability to create a just society is intertwined with our ability to to fight off uh, assimilation, um, so that's an excellent point. Yes, uh, Steve, we'd love to hear from you.
4: Um, this this is on a smaller, non global scale. Uh, my kids often say to me, "Dad, we can't volunteer like you do or or give money. Uh, how how can how can we help the vulnerable and and?" uh people who are disadvantaged and i say there are three things you can do all the time one is listen number two is smile smile is so validating and so empowering and number three you can say a person's name whenever whenever you're Mm -hmm. interacting with that person so that's my non-global steve only thing and I do believe that people are vulnerable when they are not educated. But I, and, 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 and forgive me if this is selfish, I don't want anybody telling me what I have to do to make people less vulnerable and how to educate them. And um, I, I think maybe it's, it's my constant uh, bullishness. But I think people are intuitively compassionate and willing to reach out. And all you have to do is give them a little jab, and they'll be right there. Yep.
0: So yep. That, yep. Right. Okay, wonderful. So just, Steve gives us many inspiring ideas here. And one of them is we need not bifurcate our lives into self. And here's my little volunteer window. I'm going to go on Sunday and do something volunteering for an hour. I mean, it's nice to do, and we should do it. But the opportunities to be charitable are all around us all day. Saying someone's name, listening, being respectful, being kind. It need not be in a bucket one hour a week where I donate money or donate time. Our ability to be charitable, to be loving and to be kind can uh, permeate throughout our lives and throughout our days. And that shouldn't be diminished. Some of us may be philanthropists. Some of us may have significant time to volunteer. Some of us don't have the time or don't have the funds to do that on a big level, but every human interaction is an opportunity to build someone up, to raise someone up, to have them feel heard, to have them feel seen, to have them feel valued. And, um, and those are all around us. And boy, would that heal society if we could do that. So Steve, thank you for that reminder. Okay, who have we not heard from here who also wants to jump in? Anyone we haven't heard from yet? Michael Katsoff or Matthew or Eddie? Pam?
6: Yeah, Rabbi, um, such a great class. Thank you so much. Um, I think that like uh, I'm starting to to ponder and think like what takes priority sometimes? Is it the priority of the education or the priority of the direct support and need? So um, uh, something that like brings um, into mind for me is uh, I remember when we first started helping our unsheltered community, we first started doing it with masks because we were trying to educate people about the pandemic. But the reality was that folks were really asking for food rather than masks, Uh, but the education would save their lives, um, but the food would also immediately help them. So what takes priority?
0: Beautiful. So so Eddie, what I heard you say there was, um, do we continue to prioritize what they're asking for or the education side? Because part of what education is in that regard is, I I would never say it's telling what people, what they need, but if someone doesn't have access to example for the public health uh, knowledge around vaccination or masking, right? What does it mean to do that? And you give people what they're asking for versus what we think they need. That is a great question. And Eddie, um, what's your leaning on that?
6: I think that there's a healthy balance of doing both. Um, And I think that that's what I love about what we do here at at VBM. We're able to educate folks uh, with our homeless uh, outreach program here, we're able to educate them and provide food. So we do a little bit of both. But I think that, like, my question goes like a little bit farther. Like, what's what's like the morality of what we should charge in first?
0: Awesome, awesome! I love it. I love it. So, um, yeah. So I do think that um, that um, that our basis can be, um, as you know so well, um, to listen to people. And, and respond to what they need rather than tell them what they need. And, um, and that's really significant because for a long time, people of means told people without means what they needed um, rather than listened and responded to, to their needs as, as they articulated it. And um, that, that's, that hap- happens on a micro and macro level. On a macro level, it happens with how foreign aid is given um, and the dictating of wealthy countries um, and what they're going to give. Now, on the one hand, if they're going to give it, they, you know, they, they should have the right to, um, to decide what they're going to give to. On the other hand, you know, what does it mean for them to dictate those priorities and engage in some potential, potentially uh, you know, uh, 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 cultural imperialism? So too, on the philanthropic level, Uh, One, to set their own philanthropic agenda is very powerful and beautiful. On the other hand, not to respond to people themselves and what they're asking. All the more so when there's a big uh, uh, um, uh, 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 disparity between who the giver and the receiver is. What would it look like, again, for men to tell women what they need, you know, or for white folks to tell communities of color what they need? And so I do think um, that there is a role for education as it plays out um, with communities that haven't had access to that. I think public health is a great example, like condom use, like what does it mean to have safe sex education in communities that don't have access to that or public health education. Many projects I've done in the global South were about safe sex education, um, uh, you know, know, and the like. Um, And yet at the same time, to um, really respond on a grassroots level to what people say they need most urgently. But it's also very hard because if I ask my child what they need, right, and of course, I'm not, in, I'm not, I'm most certainly not in, uh, infantilizing, you know, people in poverty, but just to use this as an example, if I ask my child what they need, they're thinking about today. Here's what I need today. Whereas someone who loves them, I want to think about what they need in a year from now and 20 years from now, you know, long term. So, too, a community in poverty is going to think oftentimes what they need today. And we want to think about their public health a month from now and their education a year from now, long term. So it is a difficult role to play, how to respond to someone's demands for now versus our care of them in the long term. Yeah, Matthew, were you about to jump in? Last question. Oh, you're on mute still. I know the mo- it says that th- the three most popular phrases you're not supposed to say in 2022 anymore because they've been worn out. One is pivot. You can't say, oh, we're pivoting. That you know, that's an overused word. You also are not supposed to say you're on mute anymore because that's an overused <laughs> phrase of twenty point one. Everyone is sick of hearing. You're on mute. So I'm not I'm not gonna use anymore. I'm gonna make up a word. Like like people say, Brandon. Brandon, you know, go Brandon is it like this new you know, I'm not promoting go brandon. But so uh, too. I, was,
7: I was I was driving before, so I put the phone, I take it off video and put it on mute. Okay. Because I it's been, I can listen to you, this way I'm less inclined to crash the car and cause damage to someone, but now good. I'm done driving.
0: Good calculation, good calculation. Good, and now it's a reminder that instead of saying you're on mute, my new phrase is gonna be, I'd like to hear you. <laughs> I, I, I'd like to hear you is gonna be my articulation of, of the moment. So Matthew, did you wanna say something or no?
7: No, no, I just thought it was a fascinating issue when especially balancing the needs of today versus a donor's
0: belief in a longer term issue. Yes, yes, great. And, great. and, 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 this, and that's, a, that's a fascinating point that Matthew's raising here because I mean, what would it mean to be a charitable giver without a vision, right? You need to cultivate your, your vision and, and to cultivate your legacy, not for the sake of legacy, but because you wanna put your moral values to practice. But what does it also mean to be a giver with humility that says, you know what, I don't have to dictate every stipulation on how this money is used. Let me be humble, make an allocation, and and trust people who are the recipients to make decisions on the ground as is needed. And that's a... Di- that, well, not
7: the, de- the, the qualification for that is, and we've had it with charities we've given to, we've given and trusted, but a longer term gift, which is not a lot of money, but a commitment. If we decided they weren't doing, that the trust was ill-founded, the gift went down. and But that's our decision. The same way with helping family members and family charity, we trust, but it doesn't mean you're always going to get the same charitable gift if you're acting in a way that we don't think is proper.
0: Right. Great. Great. Excellent. Thank you, Matthew. And uh, I'm sorry, we're, we're about to close up, but I, I see Cindy Katzoff had her hand up. And I missed a, it. Cindy, you want to jump in real quick?
5: Yeah, I have a very quick question. I live in Milwaukee, but I, I have a house in Scottsdale. I'm coming in and I'm just wondering if next week, if there are any volunteer opportunities that I could participate oh, in. Oh, wonderful. From the, again, from the Holy
0: Wisconsin to the Holy Scottsdale. Oh, wow. and I already want to roll up your sleeves. I love it. We've got a million opportunities for us, for you. So please reach out and we will plug you in into all kinds of ways of-, of So of, who uh, should
5: I contact?
0: Okay. So, um, you know, um, Pam and Eddie, if you want to, oh, there you go. Eddie, just put an email on the side. You could reach out Okay, there got and it. We'll, we'll plug you in. Oop. And boy, boy, does Wisconsin lose out on their volunteering time when you're here. Friends, I want to wish you a beautiful day. I want to wish you a happy new year, but not only a happy new year, a happy new year that channels towards towards love and kindness as it does for all of you. And I want to tell you that our debate 34 next week is a very special one. It is on individual versus the collective. Jewish thought on the individual versus the collective. Sending love and bracha for a wonderful day. Thank you very much. Wonderful lecture. Goodbye.